We are back with Genesis 38 um, to talk about what we're going to, what's going down with Judah. We're going to take a little little interlude away from Joseph. Uh, We're excited to be back, though. What happens now, though, is we kind of take a quick pause on that, as Justin said earlier. And now we're going to be talking about Judah, who is the fourth son of Jacob and the son of Leah, who Jacob married technically first. She's the older sister, Rachel being the younger sister. He was actually tricked into marrying Leah when he wanted to marry Rachel. And so, yeah, Judah is the fourth son from Leah and Jacob. From my readings, Judah's chapter here can feel a little bit out of place, but we're, we're still talking about the line coming from Jacob. This is Jacob's family, and it's really important that this be ultimately touched on. And this, I believe, is after Joseph is sold into slavery. So this is coming into kind of sequential order. Justin, is that, is that accurate? This is after? That's my understanding. From a chronological perspective, this is after. Uh, Joseph is sold into slavery. So it, it makes sense why why Moses would want to touch on Judah ultimately um, because of his lineage through Christ. Sorry if I stole your thunder, Justin. I didn't know you might have touched on that earlier. I figured just jump straight in and figure out and talk about why, why Judah is really important. No, it's all right. You've been talking way too much. I, 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 I should start off reading. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you should. All right, go ahead. All right. 38 verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her as a wife and had relations with her. And she conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a son, and she named him Onan. She gave birth to yet another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chizib that she gave birth to him. So one quick thing to note here is Judah ends up marrying a Canaanite woman. And we know from previous chapters that this was not something that neither Abraham nor Rebekah were excited about. If you go back to see and you look at Genesis 24, verses 1 through 3, we read, Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, The oldest of my household, who was in charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Abraham is very explicit here. Do not take a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites. Whatever you do, don't do that. 
real quick, let's touch on Rebecca. You know, Rebecca ultimately uh, had some challenges with the Canaanite women as well. Chapter 27, verse 46. And Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Next chapter, chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, saying to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Let's just say taking a wife from the Canaanites was not a recommended thing to do at this time. And so you see Judah here not caring about this and doing whatever he wants. Yes, so... Judah was the brother that suggested about selling Joseph into slavery instead of killing him. And we continue to see how living in the land of Canaan uh, just proved to be too much temptation uh, for the Israelites or, or for the, the beginning of the Israelites here, uh, the sons of Jacob, uh, in reference to getting involved with the Canaanites. And so Really, the, the, this interlude, as Henry brought up, is w one of the things I see that Moses is revealing to us. It's this contrast of we're about to see um, what, what a righteous man Joseph was. And this chapter is going to be very clear of what an unrighteous man Judah was. And so Judah, yeah, absolutely. So Judah has three sons with this Canaanite woman. That being Ur, the firstborn, then secondborn, Onan, and then finally, Shelah. And so these are the three sons. These three sons are obviously important to the rest of this chapter. So Ur, Onan, Shelah. Verse 6. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and... Her name was Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, have relations with your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up a child for your brother. Now Onan knew that the child would not be his. So when he had relations with his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground so that he would not give a child to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Yeah, so Judah's oldest son, Ur, was killed by God because he was wicked. We're not given specifics about what his wickedness looked like, just that he was wicked. So Onan was the second son of Judah. And by custom, he was supposed to marry his brother's widow. And the firstborn son he had... Uh, by her would be considered his brother's son. Um, this was considered, a, or I believe it's labeled as a Le Leverite marriage um, custom. And so 
this was actually later put in the Mosaic Law, as seen in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Um, however, Onan used his new wife Tamar for sex, but prevented her from becoming pregnant so that he did not fulfill his family's responsibility in, in order to honor his deceased brother. Um, and so because of this, uh, God killed Onan as well. God wasn't happy about that. And so now what happens is uh, Judah, uh, Onan's father, tells Tamar, his, his daughter-in-law, um, that she should go back and, and live with, with her parents again. And that because she's a widow and that when his third son becomes old enough that he'll have her marry his third son because she was still owed um, to, to marry one of his sons and have a child on, on behalf of her first husband. So, however, though, even though Judah told her this, he, he lied to her and he had no intention of, of giving her his third son. Um, as we read in the text, he was afraid that his his third and final son might die if he married her, um, as we see. And it, it wasn't her fault uh, that her first two husbands died. It was obviously their own fault. They were acting wickedly and, and God killed them. Yeah. So there's a ton going on in here. You know, Ur and Onan were both so evil that the Lord took their lives. This is the first time in scripture that we hear of God specifically taking somebody's life like this. And um, obviously that could, uh, could rub some people the wrong way. You know, when God takes a life, really what he's doing is, you know, people don't cease to exist. You know, we just in our earthly bodily form and then we're just waiting to be ultimately transferred to the next world or heaven or hell in that matter. Okay, not really world, but heaven and hell. And so um, God obviously is a giver of life and obviously all of us die at some point and God ultimately decided to take these two individuals' lives early because of their wickedness. This is not something that's super unusual in our society as obviously capital punishment does exist when someone does some really evil stuff they pay for it with their life. And so, and, and why is that potentially beneficial to society? Because now they're no longer able to do that evil to the world. And so, um, and it's also a serious, like if you commit serious sins, there are serious consequences because we were made in the image of God. And so there are consequences. If you act extremely wickedly toward people, uh, God is a God of justice, and, and you can't just do that. There'd be no consequences. Human life has value. Absolutely. And so Judah's, Judah's kind of, so far with his first two sons, he doesn't have a good batting average here. You know, I mean, who, we don't even know about his third son really at this point, right? His third son's a, a younger man at this point, but his first two older sons grow up to be evil or, or to do things that God dislikes so much. You know, that, that's not exactly a, a, a great father from what I've seen so far, okay? Um, it's going to get worse. <laughs> I will say, though, that Judah does try to do the right thing by giving Tamar to Onan, right? He tries to, he tries to make that 
right there. So, um, but he seems to think that this is a problem with Tamar, right? Like Tamar's kind of cursed his sons or something like that. When in reality, he can't even see that his own sons were doing wicked things, right? So he blames Tamar, not his own sons. You know, so ultimately Tamar shouldn't be blamed for this. It's ultimately his, his sons that were the ones doing wicked and evil things. You know, whenever I first reading this, I was really trying to figure out why in the world Onan would spill his seed, right? Like why, why would he do that? And my first guess was it's clearly, clear, clearly stated here in verse eight. Then Judah said to Onan, have relations with your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up a child for your brother. So first off, I was thinking, hey, he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't, he doesn't, wasn't, wasn't, doesn't want to perform this duty, which was culturally the responsibility of the brother to do. And he doesn't want to do it. And he doesn't want to raise up a child for his brother. So ultimately, he wants to look good in front of everybody else and attempt to do this, but actually not be have this responsibility to uh, raise his child. He doesn't want the this, this particular responsibility. That was the first thing I thought. Then the second thing I thought was kind of what Justin was saying earlier, right? It's like he he seemed to enjoy having a sexual relationship with Tamar without any responsibility. From one of the commentaries that I read here was that the standard English versions fail to make clear that this was his persistent practice. When in verse nine should be translated whenever. So I'm going to read verse nine here. Now Onan knew that the child would not be his. So when, or you could say, so whenever he had relations with his brother's wife, he wasted his seat on the ground so that he would not give a child to his brother. It seemed like there, this was something that was happening multiple times, right? And so he's, he's having a great time having a sexual relationship with this woman that ultimately he's not, the point of the relation, the, the him having sex with her was so that she could have a kid, not so that he could have fun and, and she won't have a child, right? So that's totally, that's, that is totally messed up. And obviously we see that in today's society all the time, right? People want to have sexual relationships, but they don't want the responsibility of marrying the person and or taking care of the byproduct of that sexual relationship, AKA a kid. So that's, that's nothing new in our society today. Okay. Finally, the third thing that, um, I thought, and from what I was reading, was ultimately, um, if Onan, if this child doesn't exist, it's my understanding that Onan ultimately receives the birthright that, um, because it would go to first Ur and then his son, but if he doesn't have a son, then it then comes to him. So he gets some type of inheritance or something ultimately from all this. And so if she doesn't have a son, then he he ultimately benefits. However, he didn't care, you know, that his brother's name wouldn't continue on through uh, this, this son because that son ultimately would carry on Ur's legacy and family line inheritance. And ultimately, God totally is not stoked on this. And from what I've read, you, you think, like, is this worth, is this for someone dying over? 
this is getting getting in the way of God's ultimate plan, which is to have Jacob's family line be extremely prosperous and have a bunch of descendants. And basically, you're you're keeping that from ultimately happening. So you're getting in the way of of God, what God really wants here. And so, um, I know it's kind of a a lot of information here, but um, I, know, I just think there's a lot of a lot of interesting things to unpack. One more thing to add, I've heard that some people interpret that text of Onan spilling his seed as basically um, a way in which you shouldn't engage in any concentration, what is it, Justin? Contraception. Contraception. Have you heard that before? Yeah, I mean, I... Yes, uh, that, I, I've I've addressed I've dialogued with people who misunderstand this passage and say that you should never use contraception or the only God's only purpose with sex is to potentially be ready to have kids every time and and the you know I I don't know I don't want to use unnecessary words but there's a quiverful movement the idea that you should just have as many kids as possible because every time you have you have relations with your wife and um. I, I disagree with all of that. Um, the, I feel like the text is really clear here. This uh, Onan was using this woman for sex. That's why God killed him. That that was it was not because God is against contraception or anything. Or the only purpose of sex is babies. That's that, that's not accurate. When you look at this in the context of of the whole chapter, that should be clear. Yeah, yeah. That's that's I think. Something that I think is worth pointing pointing out. I didn't want to forget that. Verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep sharers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And Tamar was told, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he assumed she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me have relations with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me? that you may have relations with me. He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She then said, will you give me a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and had relations with her and she conceived by him. Then she got up and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Okay, so here we learn that Judah's wife dies. Judah's wife is no longer living. And Judah then goes on this road trip with his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. And ultimately Tamar finds out about it. And she dresses up, puts on a veil, is chilling at the gateway of a name, 
Ultimately, Judah thinks she's a prostitute. He ends up having sex with her, and instead of paying her with money or some type of animal, he ends up pay, giving her a few very unique pieces of equipment. That he was planning to pay her with the animal. That's right. He's, this is like a holding. This is like when you give someone you're holding something to hold on to, so you can give them their payment later to guarantee them. That's right. That's absolutely right. He's just. This is just. Hey, hang on to this, and then this will be. Um, I'll come back and I will exchange this. Right. I'll, you'll give me back my seal and everything, and then I'll give you the goat. And so um, now Tamar at this point has possession of this equipment, which was Judah's seal, his cord, and his staff. And so Tamar, Tamar uh, involved, uh, does a little bit of deception here, you know, which we're not new to at all in all of this. So as we see in this section, Tamar decided to take things into her own hands uh, because she knew that her father-in-law was not going to come through on his promise uh, of giving her to his third son. So uh, Tamar knew, I mean, she had obviously been keeping tabs on what was going on with her father-in-law. So she knew that he was traveling and she disguised herself as a prostitute on the road that he would be traveling by. This also shows that she knew the kind of character that her father-in-law had, that he, that if she just disguised herself as a prostitute, he would hire her as one. And so, um, as Henry had mentioned, in pretending to negotiate, while Tamar was pretending to negotiate for the services of prostitution, she told him that she wanted these belongings, his, fa his family belongings, to hold on to until the, the payment of the goat was sent. And so, in ancient times in the Near East, men might wear like a signet seal in order to stamp uh, contracts or business deals. Um, which was like a cylinder seal worn as a necklace. And so she asked for these things. However, she actually never wanted the goat as payment. Uh, she wanted these items. She just, she wanted the child that she was promised um, from her sons and from his family line. And so she used this uh, deceptively in order. She got a child from his family line by him directly. And she took his items in order to prove uh, that he was the father. And so, as Henry said, we continue to see just deception um, and just multiple people involved in this story in order to get what they want. Absolutely, yeah. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the people of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at a name? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the people of the place said there was no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. So one of the things in question here is should Judah, should he have had a Canaanite friend 
um, who was potentially going to have a an ungodly influence on him. He he, as we see, was separated from his brothers, who all of them being sons of Jacob should have had a a godly influence on each other. And so the, those are just two questions that I have. And so also with that, we see when when Judah sent his friend, the Canaanite friend, to to pay Tamar with the goat, she was gone because, as we already addressed, she didn't even want the goat as payment. She wanted a child, and she wanted to be able to prove whose child that was. So when he goes on, and when Judah says that he would be the laughing stock, uh, it's probably because it's not good for your reputation to be asking around town of, of where that prostitute was uh, along by this certain area so that you can pay her. That, that, doesn't help, uh, that doesn't help your reputation to be known as that guy who is asking everybody around town on where that prostitute was because you need to pay her. <laughs> Everyone, town meeting, town meeting. Uh, there's a prostitute that I owe money to. <laughs> Uh, has anybody seen her? My name's Judah. <laughs> no, no, I completely agree. That would be, uh, even back then, I'm sure it was somewhat embarrassing. But one thing I find fascinating is not only, you know, he seemed to think this was a temple prostitute, not just a prostitute. Justin, do you have any clarity on that? Yes, so... So in, in pagan areas, it was common to have prostitutes and to have relations with prostitutes as part of the religious worship system. And so temple prostitutes would be obviously a, a part of that. And so that was a common um, form of prostitution. Yeah, so... I mean, there seems, I mean, Judah's engaging himself with potentially some time. I mean, do you, are you concerned that Judah might have been engaging in some type of pagan religious activities? Well, um, so. Or maybe this was like a side gig for her, right? Like she, yeah, in her normal day, it, it, she was at the temple, and then, then she was chilling over here this next day, and maybe right. it had nothing to do with the pagan stuff. Well, I, I would view, I don't think Judah cared if it had to do with the pagan stuff, because Judah wasn't concerned about making sure that he honored God or avoided pagan type things, it appears. But this would be, I would assume, like you used the word side gig. I think that's what he would see it as. Um, because usually with the temple prostitution, there were other things involved. Um, there was another ritualistic piece that would usually happen in the temple, um, and it would clearly be integrated with, with worship of a false god. Cool. Verse 24. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has prostituted herself. And behold, she is also pregnant by prostitution. Then Judah said, bring her out and have her burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent word to her father-in-law saying, I am pregnant by the man to whom these things belong. She also said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, 
since I did not give her my son, Shalah, and he did not have relations with her again. So Tamar has sex with Judah. Three months later, it's clear that she's showing and probably looks like she's pregnant. And now everybody's in a rup- uproar about this. Specifically, Judah is upset about this and goes so far as to say that Judah said, bring her out and have her burned. And I was a bit inquisitive of that um, for a couple of reasons. One is, well, Judah's being a huge hypocrite here, right? You know, I mean, he just had ultimately sex with a prostitute and now he's saying that she should be killed for prostitution. However, I'm aware that perhaps Tamar was betrothed to Shayla, and that's why this was adultery, perhaps. I don't know that for sure, Justin. Yeah, yeah, this would have been one of those things. Um, you, you, you could say that she had betrayed her the covenant vow or whatever um, from his perspective. But this actually gives him, uh, I think, the, the perfect out. If she would have gone, if he had promised her to his third son, which he promised her even though he never intended, and then she was found pregnant, that means he gets to to get out of that promise, right? And so that's what I think one of his motives is here. It's like, nope, she broke the promise even though he was never going to give her to the son. He just kind of had this legal way out of it now. Which is super messed up, right? I mean, he's definitely not loving, loving her. I mean, he wants to burn her, which I suspect meaning burn her to death, you know? I mean, I guess it doesn't say perhaps this could just be a some type of burning of, you know, punishment. No, it's it's a death penalty for okay. minor sinning. Okay. So man, Judah's a he's a he's a huge jerk, right? I mean, he's he's showing his evil sides left and right around here. Um and so ultimately she sends word that you know, hey, I the father of this child is the one who owns these things. Those things end up belonging to Judah, which are the signet ring, cords, and Judah's staff. Judah sees them immediately, knows, hey, I had sex with Tamar. Tamar was that prostitute on the on that road that I ultimately was walking down that with one day. And he ultimately calls her more righteous than he, which I wouldn't, you know, this is Judah calling her righteous. So um, I, I, whether she is righteous or not, this isn't God specifically saying that she was righteous in her deeds through doing this, but this is specifically Judah saying that. And so, and then ultimately he does not have relations with her again, which seems to me to be in contrast to what with what Onan was doing. You know, Onan was having relations with her just for pleasure without giving her the son. Judah seems to do the opposite here. He ends up realizing he gave her a child and he no longer has relations with her. 
I don't know what the protocol ultimately was there. However, there seems to be some contrasting elements. I think that Tamar, so I don't want to call her righteous. Um, I, I feel like she was put in unfair positions and, uh, I feel sorry for the positions that she was put in. And, um, I, I'm not, I agree with you. This is Judah calling her righteous. And I think Moses put this in here to say that, um, you know, Tamar did deserve a, a child from Judah's lineage because of the marriage that had happened. And so um, even though she went about it deceptively, she did deserve a child from, from that lineage because they married her and, and marriage is very important to God. And, and that marriage covenant, which is the way it was set up, you know, she was deserved a child from that, from that family. Um, from what I read, she legally deserved that child, right? Like this was almost like a matter of legal legality. This isn't just like, hey, you know, maybe like she was supposed to have the child. She deserved it. It was supposed to come to her. And so she ended up taking it through deception. And I've also heard ultimately that the deception, um, you know, if if she was aware, this might be a stretch, right? But she, if she was aware of, you know, the all of this lineage through Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, you know, having descendants and multiplying, it's possible that you know that you could see as someone who's looking at that as well. But I suspect, you know, right, she she wants a kid, right? I mean, who doesn't want that? Is she just going to go and get remarried with somebody else, Justin? Like, does no. she have any other options? No, Are there any other choices no for her? No. Um, also, though, I don't, I, don't, I don't think there were any spiritual motivations for her. She appears to be a, a Canaanite woman. So, yeah, there's no... There's um, no spiritual aspect, but, but yeah, there, there's no what other options aspect. does she have? Yeah, there is no spiritual aspect to call her righteous, but she doesn't have any other options. And she was owed a child from Judah's family, and so she got what she was owed. So I, I, I don't look at Tamar as like unrighteous or righteous. I, I look at her as it's sad that she was put in such a desperate situation, and she shouldn't have been. Uh, she shouldn't have been treated that way by Judah's family. And so that's that's how I view it. Right. Yeah, she shouldn't have. It just like she didn't, she couldn't go. It's like, hey, well, why doesn't Tamar just go marry somebody else? She can't do that. Yeah, and and in those days, you you can't do that. Uh, people uh, in those days, the, there was a negotiation. the The men would pay a bride price to a father uh, for his virgin daughter, and so uh, Tamar was kind of locked in because she had just now had her second husband. Um, from Judah's son. So um, there wasn't anybody else culturally that was going to uh, approach her for marriage. And having kids was obviously a big deal back then, right? Any woman, if they're looking at the rest of their life and saying, hey, I'm never going to have a kid unless I have it from one of these two individuals and I'm not getting any younger, you're in a, you're in a tough spot. So you might see why she would be 
so desperate to to take some of these actions and be bold enough to risk some of these activities that she was involved in. Right. And by our standards, right, there's this, we don't like the idea of deception, but like she didn't have, um, since I think she was a Canaanite woman, uh, this wasn't like a particularly bad thing that she used deception, right? She was in a desperate spot. This is how she was going to get the kid by disguising herself as a prostitute. So I'm not, not condoning any of that. I'm just saying that like, that was the only way she was going to get it. She didn't, she wasn't following God. I don't, I mean, that's the end of it. She wasn't, she was not a prostitute. She never engaged in any, in my opinion, prostitute activities. Right. She ended up having sex with a, with someone who was supposed to ultimately have sex with her. So at no point did she do anything illegal or even immoral for that matter, right? I mean, besides the, besides the deception part. Okay, verse 27. It came about at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth that one baby put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying this one came out first but it came about as he drew back his hand that behold his brother came out then she said what a breach you have made for yourself so he was named perez afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named zura so here we see that God gave Tamar uh, twins, and despite Judah's wickedness and attempt to deprive Tamar, Judah's lineage is actually recorded in Scripture through her. Um, and we see that one of the sons uh, was named Perez, which means breach, and the second son was named Zerah, which means scarlet, because he had a scarlet ribbon uh, put on his wrist during the birth. And so Interestingly enough, Perez, Tamar's son Perez, is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And uh, we see this in Ruth chapter 14, 18 through 22, and also Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, um, as we see where, where the lineage is traced through. So these are that, that, that's this is powerful um, that this was you know, these are ancestors of, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was, was going to come later. Absolutely. That's huge, right? Who would have thought that Tamar would be in the lineage of Jesus? And ultimately that lineage involves her deceiving Judah, a crazy bad dude, at least at the time into having sex with her as a prostitute, right? I mean, wild, you know? I mean, this this to me seems to be a pretty stark contrast from the lineage that we've followed so far, that being Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then finally Judah, and then now Perez, you know, that that last one, it is, it's amazing. Um, It's just, it's, it's a bit, you know, obviously we're all sinful and we're all, you know, um, 
do bad things, but it's pretty amazing how even through challenging, difficult times, God can turn something very challenging into a very great blessing. Final thoughts, Justin. Yes. Yeah, so this is one of those things that, uh, one of my, or my big takeaway is just remember that secret sins can become exposed. Um, these secret sins can have big consequences for your life. And it's a scary thing. Um, and it's just the idea that, uh, you know, people want to avoid shame, right? And, and we need to be careful what we do. I mean, if you want your life to have the purpose of counting for God, uh, then you'll be careful about what you do in secret because it could become known. I know there are times when people think, well, look, I, I'm not going to go around being a bad person, but they, they have a secret sin or they, they, they're, they decide to, to make a, a, a secretly sinful choice um, because they think it's, look, this is secret. No one's going to know about it. But uh, secret sins uh, can, it's, like all sins have consequences, e even secret sins. And those secret sins can become known and expose uh, us to, to feeling shame. And really, like I said, it, it's when, when we've hurt our reputation, ruined our reputation, whatever, that hinders us from serving God the way we wanted to serve him. That hinders us from our lives having um, the purpose that we wanted it to have as far as the way that we wanted to glorify God in our lives. And so really, uh, just like we, we've seen in the last couple of chapters, we, we can avoid these things by staying away from unnecessary temptations, right? And so like, Abraham knew, hey, we need to stay away from the Canaanites. We need to be careful here. And so uh, we saw the, the people, um, the descendants of Abraham that, that took that seriously and, and wanted to avoid those, um, of, avoid bonding themselves with, with Canaanites and people who were uh, contrary to the, the one true God. And we see people who didn't, who just didn't care and they went and lived in, in these areas. They, they bonded themselves with people who didn't care about God. And so, um, you know, having that temptation in our lives can lead us down that road. But uh, just remember that uh, secret sins can become public and uh, hurt our opportunity to serve God and bring a bunch of shame. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the... I think there's solutions to secret sins though, right? Like any sin that you have secretly, you know, if you have a secret sin, what, Justin, what do you think we should do? Yeah. So just one of the biggest things, me and Henry uh, both have accountability partners that we talk to once a week. Uh, me and Henry also hold each other accountable. And so the idea is that uh, me and Henry don't try to keep our struggles and our temptations a secret. We share it. With our, with our close brothers in Christ, that way our close brothers in Christ can follow up with us. Say, hey man, how are you doing on that? The idea is that if you have this accountability partner and you're trying to live righteous for God, um, you know, I, I, I believe that people who make terrible uh, life-destroying decisions don't make it overnight even when they're, when, when they're trying to follow God. What it is is it's this sin that goes unchecked for a period of time and you continue to digress and, and spiral downwards. Uh, but if you have an accountability partner, someone who's holding you accountable uh, from 
you know, from the get go, then you, 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 you're able to eventually eliminate a theoretically, right? Hopefully I know it's helped me. My, my accountability partners have helped me eliminate sins from my life and prevent me from going further down a destructive road. And so that's what I believe can happen for, for all those that are watching as well is that it can help eliminate that sin from your life because that's the goal. Because if you have unchecked sins in your life that you continue to live in, it's going to take you downward. And then that path leads to making a really bad choice that then destroys your reputation. And so the idea here, though, is not that me and Henry think people should expect themselves to be perfect. We're not perfect. But the idea that I see is that Christians should, should wrestle with their sins and, and really strive to eliminate sins from their life. Because I, I know Christian, I know people who identify as Christians who are not wrestling with their sins. They're living in their sins. They're content with their sins. And that's what we're challenging you guys to not do. Um, we know that dealing with your sins is difficult. And that's when we talk about wrestling with our sins through the help of accountability partners, but not living in those sins. The word wrestling and struggling imply that there's a fight between you and the sin. And if you're just laying over playing dead, you know what I mean? Just giving up. You're not wrestling with your sin. You know what I mean? You're not struggling. You're just admitting defeat. And you're just, so I, sometimes I think I hear people say they're struggling with the sin when in fact they're not really struggling. They're just giving up, you know, they're living in it. So I'd be very cautious of that. Um, you know, James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So there's this idea, it's biblical, in fact, to ultimately confess your sins to one another as well. Also, one more point to make, and I know I say this a lot, but it cannot go without saying, I think a lot of this starts with the leader of these households. And I'll go back, so go back as far as Jacob, you know, it's like Judah ends up being this evil dude. Can, is, is a father responsible for everything his son does? No, you know what I mean? But I think there were some serious things that took place, in, you know, in Judah's life that could, potentially could have been corrected if Jacob hadn't lived right next to Shechem to begin with, right? Maybe that's where it all started. It's hard to say exactly. Um, and then Judah, being an evil dude, ends up having two evil sons, you know, and I say evil, I mean, a dude that engaged in sin and delighted in sin, or so it seems in these verses, he has two sons that end up dying due to their wickedness. And so, and then ultimately, Judah's willing to have Tamar burned to death, right? It's like his sin has real consequences on the people around them. Your sin does too. Your sin has huge impacts on other people. You won't always know it, and a lot of times you don't know it, but it's going to have a huge impact. If you think that I'm wrong, just think about whatever the first time you did any of the sins that you were engaged in. I mean, a lot of times you're not on your own, you're not on your own right? Someone shows you something or they introduce something to you or whatever it is, and um, that stuff perpetuates. So stop it in its tracks, cut it out, quit doing it so that you don't perpetuate that out into future generations.
hey, anybody who has an accountability partner or has experienced that before, if you had how it's helped you, right? Or and it's helped you. Throw your throw your experiences in the comments of how accountability building partners have potentially helped. Yeah. Uh, it's really easy. It is a vulnerable deal though, right? You know what I mean? You are sharing some very, you know, some, your secret sins, right? The things you want to be secret. You, you, you know, that's what, that's the point, right? You're supposed to yeah. bring that into the light out of the darkness. Mm -hmm. So that's why you want an accountability partner that will hold you accountable, but also not uh, someone that you can be vulnerable with without it being a negative experience. I would also add that if whatever secret sin you have, if you're not willing to get an accountability partner and you're, and, and you've, and you've struggled with this sin for a long time, you're probably not that serious about getting rid of it. If you're not willing to get an accountability partner. So I agree. I mean, basically what I'm hearing is, Hey, I'd rather continue engaging this sin than have an accountability partner. And I mean, is that not already admitting defeat? I mean, just right. I mean, let's be men about this and, do what we need to do to cut this stuff out. So don't be afraid, find someone you trust. And not only will you benefit, but they'll benefit too. So you really be doing them a favor for that matter. Justin, love it. Super great today. Next episode, we're getting back to back on Joseph. We're going to finish out Joseph. Uh, Joseph's story is a really powerful story. There's a lot of really applicable stuff for our lives today. And um, just seeing what an awesome example he was and learning from his life. Yeah. Bros, have a brotastic bro day and we will bro you later. <laughs>